Okay, Andrew Kirby, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Of course, um, I love blog. I love your writing. It's good to be here. Thank you. So you became financially free at 22 years old and you have a YouTube channel with more than 600,000 subscribers. But let's start at the beginning because I think a story could be quite inspiring for some young people who sort of know that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, stuff like being a faithful student, but they don't know what else to do. And uh, with a sense of that, could you give us a history and narrate your path to getting out of the system perhaps and how you came to reach financial freedom at the age when most received their first paycheck? Yes, cool. So story starts when I was really young. My parents were both missionaries in a country called Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia. So I grew up in a, a different sort of upbringing to most. And we came to England when I was five years old, at which point I was a very hyperactive student, always getting told off, didn't really fit in well with the education system. And I was always being some sort of entrepreneurial from a young age. I would sell sweets. I tell the story of when I used to sell diet Coca-Colas in my backpack and I would carry so many to school every day that the backpack would rip around every three months because it was so heavy. So I did that. It worked really well. And I decided that I wanted to go and study marketing at university. But as soon as I went to university, very first lecture, day one, I realized that ugh, the education that I was receiving through the internet was thousands of times better than the education I was receiving through the traditional education system. So I realized that I had to find an alternative path. I did not want to go down the traditional path, study marketing, get a marketing job at some company that I hated. So I promised myself that I would find an alternative route. And that was a very stressful promise to make to myself because I had no idea where to turn, but I knew that the internet would have solutions. So I went to some pretty crazy depths of the internet, some random corners trying to cram the knowledge and information into my brain and slowly started to piece things together. I tried social media marketing agencies. I tried drop shipping. I tried selling physical products. I tried setting up affiliate websites for random things like bushcrafting and all sorts of crazy stuff until I finally settled on the topic of stoicism, which was a topic that I really enjoyed. I created YouTube videos about that. I basically synthesized, I consumed stoicism content, added my own experience, and then spent 10 hours learning and summarized it in a 10 minute video. Stoicism was the start. That led me on to personal development and productivity and business. And I ended up making some pieces of the puzzle fit together and figured out a way to monetize and the YouTube channel very effectively and solve my audience's problems. And that was the vehicle that ended up taking me to financial freedom. Right. Awesome. There's so many places we can delve into that. Uh, but at the beginning, you said you were always sort of entrepreneurial and uh, was that perhaps an influence because of your parents or some sort of surrounding? Yeah, good question. I don't think so. Both of my parents are teachers. My mom's a math teacher. My dad's a lecturer at a Bible college, neither of which were entrepreneurial. So I don't know where it came from, but I do know that when we moved to England from Kyrgyzstan, my family didn't have very much money at all. And money was always something that was in the back of my mind. So my mum would give me two pounds fifty, two great British pounds fifty for lunch every day. I would, instead of spending it all, I would buy a 30p bread baguette because I knew that had the calories and I would just save the rest of the money. 
So money was always a part of my life ever since that experience. But I don't know where the seeds of entrepreneurship came from. Yeah, it's curious because when you're in kind of a system where most people think the way to make money is to, you know, use the conventional way and uh, do good at school, uh, have a go to a good university, get a job, etc. And you sort of escape that right at the beginning. And like I said before, you you became financially free when people, you know, get their first paycheck. Most people get their first paycheck when they're 21, 22. And that's when you became financially free. So how is that process like? I mean, starting with uh, a few small entrepreneurial side hustles and then obviously it was a slow evolution, but it had to happen pretty quick, right? Because you're still pretty amazingly young. So how does that process look like? How do you go from, you know, small, how do you, how, yeah, how do you just evolve? It's a difficult one to know the answer to. I would say that there was not a chance that I would be anywhere near where I am today if it wasn't for finding mentors online and not even mentors that actually mentored me, just finding people that create valuable content online and going to all ends of the earth to consume every single piece of content they've ever made. So the specific journey was in testing a bunch of different things in order to find something that stuck. But all of those tests would have taken 300 times as long if it wasn't for finding mentors online that could shortcut my process massively. I'm not sure if that answered the question fully, did it? Yeah, I was hoping to get more into the specifics of you know what you started with. And perhaps we could just look at that history even more specifically. So mentors, when you start getting into uh, looking for mentors? It was in the first year of university or maybe even slightly before the first year of university, which was when I changed from economics to marketing. It was probably in the summer before university where I had free time, where I started to consume educational content online, started to consume personal development content, Tony Robbins, even some of the RSD guys, not sure if you know them, but I was deep in that sort of a world. Right. And so these people, they they like sort of gave you a framework that was much better than, you know, the trial and error aspect, trial and error correction. That's obviously a great way to make progress. But then when you get a framework that's worked for some people, when you have a, you know, uh, framework but like Tony Robbins, I think he's got some amazing personal development content out there and helped oh, thousands of people. Um so that's when you started picking up pace and started applying those frameworks, those tactics into your own project? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It would have taken 20 times as long if they hadn't made the mistakes themselves and then shared their own solutions. Right. So learning from others' mistakes. Uh, I've heard you talk about this permissionless apprentice point somewhere. And uh, were there places that you were were, were the people under whom you were an apprentice of and uh, what are some things maybe you learned from them and uh, aside from the fact that being a, permiss a permissionless apprentice is something people should do yeah I think permissionless apprentice is one of the few real shortcuts to success because part of the elements of success is being able to see the world clearly if you can see the world very clearly you know the exact causes that lead to the effects that you desire and the way you identify causes is by apprenticing other people, 
copying what they've done and that's how you short circuit the learning process i think the per first person that i ever apprenticed under was a guy called sunny t he created content about ty lopez who is the guy that encouraged me to get into social media marketing wouldn't recommend anybody to follow that path but sunny t was really interesting and he was starting to get more and more and more into youtube and me being a 23 year old kid i pretty much grew up on youtube and he was much older so i understood the world and i offered to help him for free in order to help him grow his youtube channel and throughout every single part of my process there's been me being a permissionless apprentice time time and time again he was the first person people like sam ovens even now, Naval Bravakant, I've reached out to and I've offered to help him build out his content systems and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Mr. Beast, I've had conversations with him. The whole process has been short-circuited because of learning from other people and Permissionless Apprentice is a great way to do that. Right. And, you know, a lot of people find it hard to do cold DMs and cold DMs is the way you, cold DMs, cold emails, whatever you like, you, that's that's the way to get to be able to do permissionless apprenticeships, right? If you don't, if people don't know about you, if they, they don't hear from you, then how are they gonna know that, you know, you probably exist. But then I'm curious what practices you use to um, like send DMs and create opportunities for yourself. Yeah, I think cold DMs was actually how we got in touch. Right. You reached out the blog posts, I read it, I loved it. I put it in the newsletter and probably took you like 30 seconds to write and hopefully there was some benefits from doing that. Yeah, cold DMs, cold emails are so, so, so powerful. You can really get access to people that you would dream about getting access to just if you write a cold DM. And probably the shortcut to writing good cold DMs is just to spend a little bit more time than other people are willing to spend on these DMs. If mm. you figure out a way, the most effective way is if you look at somebody who you want to get in contact with, try to identify where their most immediate problem is, where the problem that they're spending the most amount of time in their real life to try and solve that problem, and then offer to help them with that solution and show some proof of work to make yourself credible for them to actually believe that you can help them solve their problem. If someone has a painful problem, no matter who they are, and you position yourself someone that might be able to help them solve their problem, of course, they're going to reply to you. Why would they not? So that's a really good, good framework. Find someone you look up to, identify their immediate problem, and then figure out a way to add credibility to yourself, either through proof of work or just by putting in a ton of work to demonstrate that you can help them. That again sounds so uh, entrepreneurial, like a mediocre or amateurish copywriter might say, okay, what do you need written? But an entrepreneur copywriter might ask, uh, what problem are we trying to solve? Okay, what am I helping you with? And uh, maybe you won't ask that uh, to the person you're looking to work with. Maybe you just figure that out by watching their videos and just uh, seeing their tweets, maybe if they're needing some help. And then you just write in a very concise way, perhaps spend some more time, make it even more personalized. Um, I'm not sure if sending the same DM to many people is very efficient not a way to go i would recommend not because each person has different problems right so if you just write a cold message to hundreds of different people chances are they're all gonna have different problems so your message isn't going to be effective for all of them right so make your cold messages warm let's say 
yeah uh yeah that, that that's amazing so um right if you mind sharing what are your investments like have they evolved since you first started uh maybe what you learned from time in the market and the, you know the definition of investment here doesn't need to be constrained to stocks and stuff but i'm even curious to hear how you invest in your education that is the number one thing my own education I think at this point I've spent $120,000 plus on my own education. I'm 23. So I understand that any piece of education that I get today will compound just like any other investment and it will compound at a much greater rate to most. So if there's ever an opportunity that I see to learn a skill, to change my belief, to change a trait or to change anything about the way that I operate, I will invest in myself first above anything else. Um, as well as that, I have some small angel investments in different softwares that I believe in. And I just have normal, boring Warren Buffett-like investments in stocks and bonds and index funds. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I remember you asked me once what my goals are. And at that time, I pretty much just answered, I seek to understand, you know, to make sense of the world. And you pointed out something important that people you know, the people have little desire to understand something for the sake of understanding something. And they have a strong desire to understand something if there is something they would like to change about their reality. That yeah. you mentioned understanding is the purest form of power. So mm -hmm. an example would be, I don't care about how a car engine works, but if I wanted to create a fast car, then I would have a strong desire to understand how a car works. And yeah. This may be why humans are so curious, right? We solve problems. We improve upon our nature. Uh, we aren't bounded by human condition, though we are influenced by it. And if we want anything enough, we can really just get it, you know, if they're allowed by the laws of physics. So mm -hmm. I'm curious what your goals are and perhaps what you seek to understand to solve any particular problem. Great question. The first goal that I had was reaching financial freedom. Actually, that's not true. The goal that I had before that was to earn a certain amount of income. I went through the traditional treadmill of my goal initially was $10,000 a month. And then I hit $10,000 a month. Within a month, the next goal, $30,000 a month. I hit it. The next goal, $100,000 a month. And as crazy as it sounds, it was so easy to get caught up in that treadmill. Then I realized that, hold on a second, if my goal is $30,000 a month and I hit it. But as soon as you hit $30,000 a month, you have to work the next month to hit it, which is when I realized that a better goal to set was financial freedom. Because once you reach that goal, you're done. And you can now change your sights to other goals. So now my goal is having seen how much valuable content on the internet changed my life. My goal is to create the world's most valuable content and then put it in front of as many people as possible. I want to synthesize Earth's wisdom and accelerate the rate of progress through humanity goes through by spreading knowledge, spreading wisdom, so that people can short circuit all of the mistakes that I made and achieve their goals even quicker than I did it. So cool. Um, you know, money is such a uh, counterintuitive thing. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions around it. And you know, you're basically telling people to go out and work for free, right? And there's obviously a good explanation behind it, but, and that, you know, you made, you're making so much more money, right? You you're telling people to go out, work for free, but really what matters in some of those places is not 
the money, like I think Robert Kiyosaki talks about this in Rich Dad Poor Dad, you, you don't need to work for money. You make money work for you, right? And I mean, so you just try to learn as much as you can then solve those important problems. And I think the money just rolls in automatically. A hundred percent. When you're young, the most important thing is not money, it's wisdom, because that wisdom will pay dividends far greater than any money ever will, and prioritize that massively. In reality, money can be boiled down to solving people's problems. If you're able to solve somebody's problem, you're able to make money. And ideally, if you're looking to make lots of money in a shorter period of time, you solve the painful problems of people that have a lot of money because dependent on who it is that you're helping depends on how much value that you add. For example, the World Cup's on at the moment. If I went to my local football club and I told them that I could improve the average goals that they score by 10%, I could help them and it would be kind of valuable. Whereas if I was to do that to the England football team, I could do the exact same thing, but the value added would be huge because now they win more cups, which makes them a lot more money. So if you could find a group of people that have money that you can help solve their problems. It's far easier to help. It's far easier to make money helping them than normal people. Right. And so again, related to this, what are some more aspects that you should look for when looking to be an apprentice, a permissionless apprentice again, under someone? Yeah, I think the main thing is, does the person that you're apprenticing under have what you want? And if they do, then they're the sort of person for you to apprentice under. That, I would say, is the main thing. So when you say have what you want, is that in terms of what you need to learn, what you want to learn? Is that in terms of monetary benefits or something else? Anything. If if you're looking to lose weight, you're looking to make money, you're looking for a good relationship, it's probably good to identify the person that has that outcome that you want, because if they have the outcome that you want, there's a high likelihood that they know the causes that lead to that effect that you desire. So instead of you figuring out for yourself, look at somebody that already has it and they'll point you in the right direction at least. Right. So for example, I'm like freelance copywriting for this client who talks about money again, and he, he has content around wealth creation and uh, ways to make money and debunking financial myths. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm writing those emails for his subscribers and I'm thinking, wow, I'm getting to learn a lot here, you know, more than mm-hmm. anything uh, that I've been taught. So again, just through immersing myself with uh, the problem situations that I want to solve, I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's a cool way. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's a really good goal that you set. And, but you, you have been a little passive the last 12 months on YouTube. Uh, I had some comments on the tweet I sent out asking for questions. And um, yeah, Andrew, what are you secretly doing? <laughs> it's funny. In the early stages of your career, and I'm definitely at the early stages still, but even earlier, any opportunity that comes up, you say yes, and you just take advantage of everything. But later on, the problem becomes there's loads of different opportunities. There's loads of things that you can do. And the problem is you're focused on the things that matter most. So I've been doing a bunch of different projects, projects that have been exciting to me, projects that are working with cool people. And I've been doing lots of that. But I will definitely be coming back to content. I understand the importance of it. 
I see the importance that it's played on my story and I really want to create valuable content. So there will be plenty more content coming soon. Right. So when you start, right, you're wanting to say yes to everything. And as you scale, there's just too much to do. So how do you learn to prioritize things along the way? And what do you focus most on? Great question. I think that there's lots of different topics that we've talked about, and they all link to this framework that I have, which is I call the GPS framework. So the G stands for goal. So the first thing that you have to do, if you're trying to figure out what you should do, how should you spend this limited amount of time that you have on earth, you need to figure out what you want, what you're trying to achieve, then identify the problem that's stopping you from getting what you want. So this is the theory of constraints argument. The reason you don't have what you want is because there's some constraint, there's some limiting factor, some problem that's stopping you from getting what you want. So the second step is the P to identify the problem. And then the third step is to identify the first step. So step one, instead of focusing on steps two or steps 100, focus on the future, just figure out the very first thing that you need to do that's going to help you solve the problem, that's going to help you get to the goal. So I've been working on different projects and I've been trying to prioritize the things that are solving immediate bottlenecks that I have, which is largely related to building talent, assembling a group of incredible people, which I think is necessary to achieve the emission of most valuable content in front of as many people as possible. So I try to prioritize how I spend my time based on what is going to solve the immediate problem that's stopping me from achieving the goal that I'm trying to achieve. Right. That's a, that's a really nice framework. And I think that's how we, you know, at least ideally that's how we want to go forth and solve our problems. But some people tend to jump to later steps before starting the first one. So you have this awesome video, like, and, few visuals as well and talking about how you want to start at step one instead of start thinking about step two step 100 you know people mm -hmm. people want to go through that process and sort of uh enjoy the process itself and um mm -hmm. yeah i like that um right so what are what are some books some of your favorite books do you are you an avid reader uh you do seem like an avid reader so yeah are you open to me flipping this question back to you and talking about the beginning of infinity? Uh, of course. Yeah, definitely. So it's clear that you've d dived deep into that book and it's a book that I've explored very on the surface level. It's never yeah. gripped. Me. So what is it that you see about that book that has caused it to grip you? Whereas for someone like me, it hasn't had that effect of devouring it and it becoming my favorite book. Right. I do think it's somewhat like a hard read. I had to go through uh, a whole podcast series made by Brett Hall, which he was explaining like literally every single chapter of the book. And that was pretty helpful because he sort of understood as well. He was he's coming from the same background, right? He, he also uh, he flipped through the first book, uh, first David Deutsch's book, and he didn't quite get it the first time. And read it another time sort of got it and um yeah that so having that other um content that really helped for me so what's really been impactful is that i think the whole world view that that book gave me it's not one i, I can't really specify a single or a couple of things though uh you know i'll just try pointing some out but it, it was just that the book was so good that it just changed 
your whole worldview, right? And mm-hmm. right from thinking about thinking, thinking about knowledge, what knowledge is, and these are really like universe altering stuff, right? With knowledge, mm-hmm. we we're essentially a for knowledge is another force in nature. We utilize the power of nature itself and we do so many amazing things. And what David Deutsch also really uh, shattered like a myth for me is that humans aren't as irrational as I thought they were. Like earlier I was reading all these psychology uh, pop, like pop psychology books and they were essentially talking about how irrational human beings are. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like David Deutsch pointed out that man we the fact that we can understand our irrationality our so-called irrationalities and improve upon things it it Mm -hmm. really is just a matter of what ideas are the is the society governed by is it governed by rational memes or anti-rational memes anti-rational memes are those that suppress criticism so a modern life sort of example not really the perfect example because no society is perfectly anti-rational but school right they they want you to follow the rules and uh not question do what you're told and they're really suppressing curiosity creativity and really criticism to their ideas as well right mm-hmm. but if we're in a free society where we can criticize ideas which the western world is in sort of right now and um you know, this tradition of criticism, that's really important. And a principle of optimism that David Deutsch gave was that all problems are soluble, right? And all evil is due to a lack of knowledge. If you can get that knowledge and solve that problem, sure, there'll be another problem, but that's just what the fun is all about, right? You solve Mm -hmm. one problem, get to another problem and try to make the process of problem-solving fun. And again, there were just so many. So these are a few, and I hope I've highlighted them well. I definitely think you should delve into them, give them another chance, another couple of chances, try looking at notes and stuff. And um, yeah, that'll be a life-altering read, perhaps. Nice. Okay, I appreciate it. In terms of books that I've read, probably the books that have changed the trajectory the most along the way was first Think and Grow Rich, which was the book that probably started me on the personal development journey. Next book would be something like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, offers a great framework for living, great framework, almost like an operating system for living life in chaos. Um, Books like the four hour work week, I found really interesting. That was early on in my, my journey. But recently, it's got to the point where I haven't been reading that much. It feels like my constraint at the moment is around execution. I know what I need to do. I just need to do it. I don't need new information to solve my problems. I just need to do what I know I need to be doing in order to solve them. So I've kind of gone off reading recently. Right. I see a couple of overlaps. I mean, Think and Grow Rich was one of the first books I ever read. And wow, again, right? Shattering money myths and stuff like that. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, and right. So you haven't been trying to read that much because you know what problem situation you're in and you know what things you need to solve them. 
that's a pretty nice one. And I think like I've also transitioned from reading self-development to more nonfiction books and just reading mostly for the specific situation I'm in, specific problem I'm trying to solve instead of just, you know, dabbling around and whatever. And this problem situation could be anything, right? If I need, if I need to have fun, then I can read a book that's, you know, that's going to be fun to read. Uh, most mm-hmm. books are, but just a more light kind of read. So mm-hmm. I think reading books helps when you're trying to um, read according to your needs, right? And reading obviously helps in writing as well. Definitely. I recently read an essay by Paul Graham. He was like, you know, reading shouldn't, reading wouldn't be replaced by anything as a means of acquiring real knowledge anytime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason behind this is, you know, there are other sources that aren't really as efficient as reading. And another more important one is that reading allows you to write better, right? And mm-hmm. and writing, writing is very important. Why does writing, see, if reading allows you to write better, but then if everyone doesn't have to read because there's other sources, then why do we need people to write? But writing matters because writing isn't just a way to convey ideas. It is a way to have ideas, mm-hmm. right? And uh, yeah, that, that's again, sort of like a fascinating point about reading. So um, yeah. I do an insane amount of writing, not publicly, but personally. Something I picked up from Marcus Aurelius in the meditations right. book, which is absolutely crazy when you think about that book. The guy, Marcus Aurelius, was the Roman emperor. He was the most powerful man alive. And every day he would be at the trenches at war and he would go home after a hard day of fighting, open up a personal journal and write these beautiful words, these prose that are almost like a, like a poet. He wasn't even writing in his, his main language. I think he was writing in Greek, which wasn't the language that he spoke. It was the, the language of philosophy at the time. And now, thousands of years later, we get to see the personal writings of this incredible man who was a Roman emperor, most powerful person ever. And he wrote these things, not expecting anyone to see it, but yet we get to see it. It's beautiful. That's so fantastic, right? I love the book as well. And the fact that he didn't mean it to be published, right? That that just makes it even, even better. And mm-hmm. yeah, let, let's talk about creating for yourself versus creating for others. Then I think there's this tendency to start creating for other people and being motivated by the result of them watching your stuff instead mm-hmm. of creating something for the fun and beauty of itself. So, so how can we create without looking at the comments or looking at the lack of comments? Yeah, it's an interesting question. The should you create for yourself or should you create for others question? I think in reality, it's impossible to create for others. What you mean by should I create for others is should I create for myself, but create in a way that's designed to get views or praise or attention. It's still creating for yourself. It's just creating out of extrinsic motivation to get money or views or attention or whatever, instead of intrinsic motivation. I think the sweet spot, the sweet spot, and it's a very difficult sweet spot to find, is to find the overlap between content that other people love to see and content that you love to make. And if you can find that overlap, you have intrinsic motivation, which is going to allow you to be consistent. And you have extrinsic motivation because it's designed to be in a way that other people will enjoy, which is going to get attention and views and money, which is needed to sustain the career. So if you can find a way to find the overlap between what you want to make and what other people want to see, that's the perfect world. 
And as you start getting more people to see your content, you start getting feedback. And so th- that feedback can help you get more people and sort of mm-hmm. maybe align with your interests as well. Have you uh, like understood the advantages of you know the comment section or getting feedback and criticisms, productive criticisms from uh, your audience? Massively. There's many times that I've made a mistake and people have pointed out that mistake and I'll learn from it. Don't get me wrong. There's massive amounts of times that I haven't made a mistake or people are just angry about something and I completely ignore them. And it's difficult sometimes to distinguish whether this is a me problem or a them problem, but there's definitely be points that people have pointed out mistakes that I've made prompted me towards further reading that I can explore really, really valuable, useful feedback as well. Can you give some examples of, uh, you know, where you've made perhaps a, perhaps some kind of particular mistake that you've been corrected because of your audience? Yeah, there's been specific, the most obvious ones have been specific, like historical mistakes where I've assumed something to be one way. There was one where um, I, I painted the Spartans in quite a positive light. I was talking about the Spartans and their willpower and people were very quick to point out the amount of slaves that they owned and all of these other negative things associated with the Spartans, which is interesting stuff room for learning around there there's also been the ones that hurt the most are the ones that are deeper towards your personality traits and the ones that you're like oof questioning if that's that's true um can't think of any specific examples around that Hmm. times that i have ventured too far towards extrinsic motivation away from intrinsic motivation perhaps times that i've ignored my own values in a quest for money or views or attention or things like that and people have been helpfully pointing that out and it's a reality check right and you know going back to that point i mean the reason why why you know people saying stuff in the comments hurts is is that there's actually some truth to it otherwise why why would it hurt right there may actually be some truth to it otherwise why why would it hurt like they're just screaming stuff and really shouldn't matter to me if I know they're not wrong right and so uh yeah that, that's again some something interesting there and it'd be fun to turn to happiness for a while because your content revolves around happiness wealth creation and other aspects but my views on happiness have evolved a lot right starting as the uh conception that most people tend to have not most, but some people that, you know, pleasure and chasing material stuff is what's going to make you happy. And mm-hmm. then you sort of go to, no, pleasure is different and happiness is something different. So I'm curious what your thoughts on what do you think happiness really means? Mm-hmm. Good question. I think there's probably been three phases of my happiness journey. The first phase was fuck happiness. I don't care about happiness. I want to achieve something that I want to achieve and I'll do whatever it takes in order to get there. Right. Second stage after reaching that, okay, I've done it now, but yet I'm still not happy. What is it that I need to do in order to become happy? That was when I started diving into the rational Buddhism school of thought. And my understanding of that field is that happiness comes when you accept things as they are. And unhappiness is a desire unhappiness is when you want the world to be different to the way the world actually is because if you want things to be different to the way they are 
that causes desire, that causes stress in your life. And anxiety is caused when you want something in the future and you're scared you're not going to get it. And that creates the anxiety. So the whole field of happiness revolves around how different is the world from the way that you want it to be. Right. And I went into that school of thought for a long period of time. I assumed that the way that I should be living is to accept my life the way that it is, to just be happy. I tried to view myself as a cat that's bathing in the sun, just peaceful, relaxing. Things are the way they should be. Everything is as it should be. And I did that for a long period of time. And that was okay. That was fun. I'm glad I went through that period. But it got to the point where I started to feel stagnant. And there's a chance that this was because I wasn't accepting my current situation as much as I, I should be. But I'm back more in the school of thought now where it feels better when I'm doing. It feels better when I'm in motion. Stagnant is water that's still. So if I'm not still, I don't feel stagnant. And I find fulfillment and purpose when I'm in quest of a noble goal that's hard to solve. And that has been probably the most fulfilled that I felt. That does come with more stress, it comes with more difficulty, which is the opposite of a cat lying in the sun. But there's a deeper level of happiness that isn't pleasure that I find to be more meaningful than other things that I've experienced. Right. I definitely see an overlap between the the three phases. Like I sort of went through a similar kind. And right now, I think, yeah, progress, right? Making progress, that's that's good. And when you do that, it's, yeah, I mean, happen wow i used to think a lot about happiness when i was in phase two right when uh, you know just uh, be stagnant and let everything be it's all happening anyway but now when you're making stuff happen uh, that just makes it feel really good and you know so yeah that that's really that's an interesting point um do you do you have any thoughts on the question of the meaning of life. <laughs> I'm probably on the side of things that from an objective standpoint, there is no meaning. Right. There is no purpose that we're here. It is all simply cause and effect. Things have happened that have caused other things to happen, which have caused more things to happen. And things will continue to happen whether I'm here or whether I'm not here. But whilst I am here, I may as well do the things that I find fulfilling and I may as well try to reduce the suffering that is on planet Earth, not because that's a moral thing for me to do. It's just when I see suffering, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And that's something that I would like to ease. So it's a sort of question that I haven't come to definite conclusions on. But the conclusions I have come have been more close to whilst we're here on this time that we have on Earth, we should do things that we find meaningful doesn't mean that there is an inherent meaning, but why not pursue things that we find meaningful? Right. And, you know, there's always this argument that I think is kind of fallacious, that to, in order to do stuff you want to do, you must do stuff you don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And school, school, like they tell you this in school, they tell you this in university, at your job as well. They're always telling you to do stuff you want to do. You got to do stuff you don't want to do. And I think that's really a fallacious argument. So, uh, you, you know, you can just pursue stuff that's meaningful in itself and get stuff where you want and still make money, still make wealth, still be mm -hmm. happy. <laughs> Why go through? Yeah. It's a really, really interesting topic of conversation. It's the whole 
delayed gratification argument, which is which is interesting and really valuable. And there's a ton of people that fall into the trap of only pursuing instant gratification. They're on TikTok all day. They watch porn. They just go on video games. They are on YouTube all day, not doing anything that's long-term beneficial. Then there's the other school of thought, which is delayed gratification. You should ignore the now. You should only focus on things that are going to benefit you in the future. Only eat salads, go to the gym every day, cut out TikTok immediately, do things you hate because you know that's going to get you what you want in the future. And the perfect world, if you can find it, is you find things that bring you both instant gratification and delayed gratification. You find areas where you can explore your curiosity, explore your intrinsic motivation, and that also brings you extrinsic motivation. For example, if you find a sport that you love to play, you can play it just for the sake of playing it, but the extrinsic motivation is it also keeps you fit. That's the best case scenario. Yeah, that's that's exactly what's there for me with running. Like I I essentially run to because it's fun for me, right? And mm. at some level, it's also a little harmful because the amount I really run is pretty insane. And uh, yeah, I do tend to lose a lot of weight because of it and like sort of an unhealthy amount of weight, but it's still the, it sort of keeps the middle ground and uh, yeah, it's really interesting, right? But like doing something you want, so wants and wants can obviously be um, objectively good for you, like from an objective uh, standpoint, they're like, you know, you, you can want to go to the gym and sometimes the ends can also justify the means and mm-hmm. uh, make the process itself fun right when you're thinking about the destination or you're not think like that destination sort of it, it makes the process itself fun and I know you've talked about how thinking about the destination is not a pretty cool thing to do and um, yeah like just not thinking not focusing on the destination and just being right that Mm -hmm. again sort of brings us to phase two but then there's so many complexities here and Mm. uh, yeah it's just an interesting topic to discuss yeah so there's the whole argument of should you focus on the journey or should you focus on the destination and what i found is that people focus on the destination and that causes them anxiety like we talked about because you desire something in the future you're unsure if you're going to get it which creates anxiety about whether you get it you really want it to happen but you're worried that it's not going to happen that creates anxiety so the solution that most people prescribe for this problem is to focus on the process so people think okay i need to focus on the journey i need to enjoy every single step of the way but what happens is you're focused on the journey but you're still focused on the end you're focusing on the journey, but you still really want the end outcome. What may be better advice instead of to focus on the journey is to remove your attachment to the end outcome. And now you automatically focus on the journey. That's a true focusing on the journey, not by a doing, not by trying to focus on the journey, but by an undoing, by removing focus on the end destination. But like you said, someone that's climbing Mount Everest really wants to get to the top. And as they're climbing up, it's grueling. It's brutal. They're not enjoying the process of climbing up Mount Everest. It's freezing cold. There's dead bodies next to them. But if you look back in five years at that quest where you made it to the top of Mount Everest, you look back on that with nothing but fond memories, assuming that everyone was okay on the journey up. You view that as a very, very positive thing. So sometimes it is completely okay to focus on the end destination. Even if you stress and you suffer 
you look back and you view it as a meaningful quest that you went on. Right. So going back to something you said a while ago, uh, you said you write a lot for yourself, stuff you don't publish. And uh, you've talked about note-taking apps before on your YouTube channel. And I'm curious what your system for writing, for note-taking is and how you how you write and why you write for yourself. Yeah, I write for a similar argument you brought up previously, that good writing leads to good thinking. Mm-hmm. And the process I follow is not every morning I wake up and I write or I use this app or that, that app. To me, it's just if there's ever a problem in my brain that needs clarification, there's something unclear, something I'm confused about, I write. It's very simple. Just I'm experiencing a problem. I'm experiencing stress. I'm experiencing anything. I'll just write about that problem. And that leads to solutions that I would never come to if I was just thinking. I find thoughts just loop. You have the same thought again and again and again for hours. Whereas when you write, you can write the thought down. And then obviously you're not going to write the same thought again and again and again. Your brain is forced to come up with a new thought based on the previous thought. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. Um, but yeah, this was an amazing conversation. It's so great to be able to speak with you. And um, I'll be putting all your links in the episode description so that people can uh, watch your stuff, reach out to you maybe if they want to. We've talked about cold DMs, so you know, should be some pretty cool, cool insights for that. And uh, yeah, any closing remarks? Only closing remarks is I appreciate your time and keep writing. You write some great blog posts and I'm so excited to see where you are in five, 10 years. You're young, you're in a great trajectory. Keep going, keep working and you'll end up in some cool places. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Of course, see you later.